0: Well, this is a weekend in which we celebrate our freedoms with uh, parades and fireworks. Uh, We wave flags because we value freedom as Americans. We have the freedom in America to worship however or whoever someone wants to. We have the freedom to um, look or to dress or to just seemingly be the person you want to be. We have the freedom to vote as we wish according to our conscience or values. We, we value freedom and we know that there are countries where there are oppressive laws that tell everyone to worship the same way, tell everyone, especially women, to dress the same way uh, where, where no one is able to vote. So we value and we are grateful for our freedoms in America. The message this morning is, however, not about uh, freedom as Americans, but rather freedom as Christians to have different convictions about issues that the Bible does not specifically address. It does not say yes or no, does not say there's a command, there's a prohibit, something to be prohibited. We have a lot of freedom as Christians on a lot of things. Just some samples. Thirty-some years ago, there was an organ over here where the, uh, where the drums are. And we sang out of hymnals and not looking at a screen. There weren't guitars. It was piano and organ. Worship is a big deal. Do we have freedom to choose what type of accompaniment we have some of us don't drink alcohol at all. Some of us in the room drink alcohol in moderation. Or it could be that you struggle with maybe drinking in excess at times. What, what kind of freedoms do we have? And does the Bible address these Freedoms and how do we decide what to do when the Bible doesn't tell us what to do? Because if you are a biblically minded Christian, and I trust you are, you say, Well, if the Bible told me to do it or not to do it, I would do that. But so many times we are not told. So then, how do we make important choices that we nonetheless must make? Well, the issue in Corinth of the first century was certainly different, but the principles. Were this, are the same for us. So uh, the, the, the whole understanding of this passage is really right in the first verse. The key is lying at the front door. Now about food sacrificed to idols, and the food in question is, is meat. It's essentially a synonym here for meat about the food sacrificed to idols. So they had written in their letter asking them a whole series of questions. One of them was about food sacrificed to idols. Paul says, "We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up." About meat sacrificed or offered to idols. I'm going to go out on a limb here today and say, probably none of us in this room have been tempted this week to eat meat offered to idols. Probably ever, right? That's just not our, our, our culture. That's not our, our, our religious culture. So what was going on there in Corinth, and how does it relate to us today? It's interesting, Paul doesn't answer this question with a simple yes or no, does he? In fact, all of this chapter and the last half of chapter 10 are all devoted to the issue of eating meat sacrificed or offered to idols. That's how big of a deal. That's how much, that's how much uh, real estate he spends writing about it. It was a big deal for them. So why was that? Worship in metropolitan Corinth of that day at the temple and the temple grounds was not just like a, a weekly visit I got to do my worship thing at the pagan temple. I'll go in, I go out, and then go about my secular week. Worship at the temple meant that you went and you brought your animal sacrifice to the pagan gods, and then you ate the sacrificial feast. It just, it just went together. Those, were, those things were a pair. Just like maybe for you, if you go to a brewer game, you, you tailgate. If you go to the, the mall, you, you stop at the food court. If you, if, you, if you go to the county fair, you'll have a, a corn dog or whatever. It just Food often goes with something else you do. And, and this sacrificial feast was essential. In fact, some scholars have described that this meal at the temple was essentially like a, like a restaurant in ancient Corinth. It's where you went if it was a pagan holy day, of course, but it's also where you went if you had a family party. Well, we'll go do it at the temple grounds. It's where socialization took place and you met the people maybe you were going to marry or the people you would do business with and you had these conversations. It was, it was just a kind of a public square kind of a place. So when you're eating that sacrificial meal, where did they get the meat from? Well, the meat had just, it was fresh. It had been offered to idols that day. So what's the issue of meeting meat sacrificed to idols? Some of the meat was burnt up in the sacrifice. They brought the sacrifice, whoosh, and some of it just burnt up to the gods. Some of the meat was take-home pay for the priests, But the rest of the meat would become available to the public. And so the the Corinthians are asking Paul, is it okay to eat that meat? And it's not so simple as yes or no, because there was a Corinthian believer's dilemma because it wasn't all the same in how it got to the public. You see, some of it was eaten at those temple feasts, really part of the worship. Some of it went to the market, and so basically, to buy that meat was like going to get your groceries. And then there was also this issue that sometimes a Christian would go to a friend or neighbor's house and they were serving meat, and you could be pretty sure they probably bought it. It was temple meat. And so there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of nuance. There's not just like yes, no kind of answers to many things in our life, let alone what the Corinthians faced. To make the issue even more complicated, the church of Corinth was made up of Jews and Gentiles, right? The Gentiles, the non-Jews who had come to faith in Christ, they grew up eating there. It was just a thing that part of their culture really and so they had to decide, do we stop doing that? And, and which one do we stop? The Jews never grew up going to idol feasts. So to them, it was probably more of a, of a non-issue. They never did it before. Why would you start now? But the Gentiles had to decide, you know, is it okay to go to those idol feasts? And if, we, if we're bothered by that, is it okay to buy it as groceries in the market? And then this other level, then, If you know your friend is serving it, can you eat it? It becomes a bit complicated. Some would say, I'm I'm not going to support the temple by giving my money even to the vendors. I'm just not going to let my hard-earned money go there. I'm trying to stay as far away as possible. And so you just had a different perspective. And so they write this letter and they say, Paul, help us. I wonder if Paul took yet one more deep breath before writing chapter 8 going, <sighs> I mean, already in chapter 5, he he'd had to address the issue of, of incest within the church family, somebody who needed church discipline. And he had to uh, talk in chapter 6 about Christians who were, who were suing each other, and in chapter 7, he had to talk about sex outside of marriage and sex inside of marriage and divorce issues and singleness, and he goes, Man, there's just one more thing that's dividing us as a church. So it became complicated and difficult, and so he's going to address it in this chapter and chapter 10. Through the decades at Open Door, we've disagreed on a, on a few things. Somehow we went from an organ to drums. In recent years, we've addressed more things that we disagree on. How do we decide what's right or wrong? Well, in verse 1, I think Paul really boils down the main point. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Knowing the facts and being right can just be an ego thing. Love is operating church life on a completely different uh, level. Knowledge... Puffs up. You just picture that person. It's self centered. It's about me. Love is about you. So it's a whole different, just like we need a biblical worldview, we need a biblical church view. Are we about others? Or are we about self and the knowledge of being right? Love builds up. Second line, Paul says, we know that we all possess knowledge. It's possible he's actually quoting some who were claiming a certain freedom, and he's actually agreeing to say, we know that we possess knowledge. He's saying, I know knowledge is important, but realize knowledge pops up. In chapter 8, as well as in chapter 10, he's going to lay out the knowledge issue, the doctrinal issues, the spiritual, factual issues says, I'm not saying those aren't important. I'm saying there's, in these areas, something more important. Because you can know better, know right, know true, know doctrine, and not be loving, of course. But love builds, love edifies, the word means, just is thinking about the, how to help, how to encourage, how to serve, how to care, how to consider that other person. We're just other-centered. And so if there's uncertainty about what you should do, don't just ask the question, is it okay if I do it? But is it loving for me to do it? Or to do it like this, or to do it in front of others, or to say it now? How will it affect others? Love builds up. And so he confronts really the the, the puffed-up person in verse 2, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. That's a, that's a very direct uh, confrontation. He thinks he knows something, but he's, he's thinking on the entirely wrong plane. He does not owe, know what he, what he th- ought to know because his attitude is wrong. The proud person is the one he's talking to has to listen and learn because they've import, ignored the most important issue of acting out of love. If you know 1 Corinthians, you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is called what chapter? The love chapter. He said, you can, you can speak incredibly. You can have all knowledge. And you know how you come across? A noisy, clanging, cymbal, brass, is. In other words, you can, you can have all the facts right, but you actually are just an annoying Christian to many people, unless those who exactly agree with you. And he says that, that, that's going to be a problem. And so he says instead, verse 3, but the man who loves God is known by God. Hmm, the man who loves God. I, I would have thought he would have said, but, but the man who loves people is known by God. He doesn't say that. He says, the man who loves God. And I think what Paul is saying is the first thing you have to do to correct that arrogant attitude is not, I just try to love people as if it's a horizontal issue. The first thing you have to do is to focus your eyes on God and say, I love God. Because you know what? When you truly love God, you learn to love people. And if you're having trouble loving people, it's because you're having trouble loving God. So I'm gonna, Paul said, I gotta emphasize, you gotta get your eyes off of this, this um, arrogance of horizontal living. I'm I know better, I'm better than that person. And get your eyes upward and say, I know God, I love God. And it says, and God knows you. Because God is looking for that humble spirit. And that's when God says, ah, that's the one that's, that we have a close relationship, because you know how I think about the body. Never mind how you think about certain people, or this other issue, or that issue that you disagree on, this is how I think, and God knows him. It's very important to be known by God in that relational way. So, he's laid the foundation, says, okay, let's, first things first. You've got an issue. Do you decide who can eat what about the idol thing? But let's talk about the most important issue first, and that is knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Are you on that team? But then, surprisingly, in verse 4, Paul says, okay, let's talk about knowledge because knowledge and facts really are important. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, verse 4, do you see how he's kind of like restarting? He's laid the foundation of the real issue, Love builds up. But now he says, if your attitude is right and loving, then knowledge does matter. Now about eating food sacrificed to idols. Here's what we know. We know that an idol is nothing at all in this world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is but one God the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live or exist. And, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came, and through who, whom we live or exist. So he, he's laying the doctrinal, factual uh, foundation of the idol issue. He says, we've got to understand, idols are nothing, they're just metal and stone, There is no God but one. He's really directly quoting the great Shema of the the Old Testament. Hebrews 6, 4, where Moses had to remind the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And like the ancient Israelites in the Egyptian culture, the Corinthians in their culture were also polytheists. They believed in many gods. The, the plagues of Egypt, each of those ten plagues was directed at one of the, the false Egyptian gods. There, you know, the sun god, or the moon god, or the, the gods of the Nile River. And so likewise, uh, the Corinthians or the Roman people worshipped Zeus or other gods. There is no Zeus. You can read about him, but there, he doesn't exist. There actually is none. We know that an idol is nothing at all in this world. It's just, it's just stone and steel. So what's the big deal about idolatry if there's nothing to it? Why is there such spiritual bondage to it? Jump ahead to chapter 10, verse 20. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So how do demons get involved with idolatry if it's just you know, metal and and stone. Zeus is not real, but Satan is. And he wants people to worship Zeus. He wants people to worship all those images that Paul found in, in Athens. He wants people to, Satan wants people to worship totem poles. He wants people to worship Buddha statues and to hang Crystals from their mirror and ascribe power to them and good luck charms and Ouija boards. These are material things, but they're actually nothing unless you believe that there is somehow power in them. Because when you believe in nothing, Satan shows up. Uh, some years ago I was preaching a short series on demons and angels. And during that series one time, I was walking through the checkout line at Walmart, and uh, if you remember those Globe booklets on all kinds of you know, diets or whatever? There was one on angels, and I bought it. And looked around and wanted to make sure that nobody from Open Door saw me buy the angel booklet. That's where Sid does his research, you know, those little <laughs> booklets at Walmart. But I wanted to see what they said, and it said, First of all, it told some angel stories from the Bible. That's true. Then it told some angel stories that people have claimed. I mean, could or could not be true. And at the end of the that it says, do you want to meet your angel? Here's what you do. You go out into the woods, find a very quiet place, empty your mind of all thoughts, and ask your angel to come to you. That's pure paganism. That's your introduction to the occult. Because when you believe in nothing, Satan shows up. If you believe in nature, if you worship nature, Satan shows up. We send missionaries to places in tribal areas that are dealing with the satanic lies of animism, where there is that belief that's, that plants, trees, animals have souls. That's paganism. And it's filling our culture as well in the movies, kids' movies. Mother Earth, Earth, Mother Nature is a pagan idea. So we believe there is one God. You need to understand that to settle the idol, God issue. And even if there are so-called gods, what does he mean by that? They are nothing but. But the so-called gods is when someone believes they are something and Satan shows up. So they can can exist, you could say, existentially in their minds. But for us, there's but one God, the Father, from whom all things came. We we wouldn't even need Genesis 1 and 2 if you just believed that. God the Father, from whom all things came. And Genesis 1 and 2 are absolutely true, and they tell the story that we did not evolve, but in six days God created everything that is. From whom all things came. And the next line, this, this is just fundamental core doctrine that changes our life. If God created everything, then it follows, second line, for whom we live or exist. You exist for the purpose of the one who made you. Just as you you make something, it exists for your purpose. He made us, we exist for His purpose. It really changes everything because it's all about getting our eyes off of self. So we do not exist to have more fun, to have more accomplishment, to have more acclaim, to be appreciated. We, we exist for Him. And that really addresses all of our personality struggles, I think i think it's first aimed at the the people who are the arrogant puffed up knowledge people you think your opinion is so great who made you god made you you exist for his purpose what's your purpose in this body of christ that i designed you aren't so great god is great He's, you exist for his purpose, but, but even if you're the, the person on the other end of the spectrum, you're more of the, the insecurity, uh, in, in inferiority complex, unappreciated. It's, just, it's not about you if you're this arrogant person, and it's not about you if you're the, the insecure, invisible person, because you exist. You will find your purpose and value in the presence of God who made you. He, he made you. We exist for him. And likewise, from whom all things came the Father, but also but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. God the Father created all things. it all came out from Him. How did He do it? He did it through Jesus Christ, the Creator. Jesus the Creator. So Jesus is not lesser than God. Jesus. Is God so? The so the, so the Mormons are sadly mistaken when they will call Jesus the Son of God, but they call they fall, they stop short of saying He is God. And and the Jehovah's Witnesses are sadly mistaken. They swing and miss if they say that Jesus is a God. No, He is the God because God the Father created God, the Son created, and God the Spirit created. Genesis one two, the Spirit moved across the face of the waters. The three are one, and and so this triune truth is essential to understanding idolatry and even meat offered to idols. It settles who. We need the knowledge of idols are nothing. Satan empowers them. We only worship God. But I think he's doing something else. I think he's saying, let's unify the church at Corinth around the doctrinal issues of truth. Let's unify that. And then let's put on a lower shelf the issues of which, which meat exactly do, will you eat? It was dividing them because they had different convictions about lesser issues than who is God and for whom do we live. Verse 7 But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Now he's getting to the heart of the the matter of conviction. Some, and he does mean other Christians, to some Christians in your church family, Those idols are not just meaningless nothings. Why? Those brothers and sisters have a really hard time eating meat sacrificed to idols because they had been worshiping idols and they are drawn into this whole idolatrous mindset if they go and sit down at those feasts. They're not real, but they will still be so repulsed or else even tempted to fall into the worship of idols again. Why? Because their conscience is weak. The term weak is used there. It's uh, used in verse 9. Don't be a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 11, the weaker brother. What does it mean to be weak? Sometimes I think we've heard the word weak refers to less mature. I'm not so sure that that's the case. Being weak as a Christian in this case is not just about being less mature but more Sensitive. This term weak is the same term that Peter used when he said uh, that that husbands should treat their wives well because they are the weaker vessel. Are they the less mature partner in the marriage? Have you seen what guys do? Is that mature? (laughs) this This is not about maturity. In fact, if it's about spiritual maturity, who's mature? The arrogant, puffed-up ones? Hardly. He is confronting the immaturity of those who felt they had the most freedom because it is the libertines, those who, who thought they, had, they could just go with any kind of freedom. They're actually less spiritually mature. And this is one of the reasons, because they don't consider those who are, have a more sensitiv- greater sensitivity to the idle issue. And so he says... Here's how these conviction things should be viewed, verse 8. Food doesn't bring us near to God. What's the goal of maturity? Being near to God, being known by God. If you love God, you near to God knows you. You want to be near to God. You want to have this close personal relationship. He says, and food, and whatever you decide about this food issue is not going to determine if you're close to God or not. And so he says, if, if we are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. It truly is, in some sense, He'll define it more yet because there's so many nuances. But the food issue is not the issue. Being near to God is the issue. It's the same way he was viewing circumcision now in the post-Christ era. Chapter 7, verse 9. Circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. There's a higher value. Love for the body. That's what builds you up. There are so many choices as Christians that we must make that are not clearly defined. And so we call them convictions. You need convictions. Why? Because you need to make decisions on things that can affect you spiritually, personally. Even if indeed they do not make you more holy and do not make you... In other words, the nature of the decision you're trying to make is not in itself something that's going to mark you as holy, unholy. But you still got to decide if you're going to do them or not. In, uh, in, in Romans, when Paul addresses some of the same issues, he, sa- he gets to the issue more of, of, of how we then judge one another based on those things. So I think this would be a good time for us to review three terms that we've used here at Open Door through the years that have kind of helped us work through different kinds of differences. Because not everything that the Scripture says, not every application you make is on the same level. What I think this passage is talking about is convictions. But let's understand convictions in light of both absolutes, convictions, and then preferences. An absolute is that which is always true, always right, always wrong, timeless commands and truths that are clearly taught in Scripture. It has nothing to do with the culture or the times. Ten commandments essentially fall into those, murder, honesty, sexual purity, or anything else that Jesus commands, lust, envy, drunkenness. Hmm, some politics. Because some political issues are moral, absolute issues. I believe abortion clearly falls into that. Some things are convictions. Those are the things that I believe... God's word is applying to me, so they become my personal choices and applications based on how I understand certain biblical principles. What are some of these examples? Modesty. The scripture said to be modest, but what is modest? Much of what we're wearing today would not have been modest 100 and some years ago or, or whatever. So what is modesty? That becomes your application, not a rule. Let's not make rules for each other, but, but the principle matters. You have to decide. Entertainment. What are you going to watch? What are you going to read? Is having a drink okay? Tattoos tattoo is okay? Must you tithe? Oh, and some politics. Because sometimes there are political decisions that are made that will force a Christian into a decision. Do I obey God or man in this situation? Do I, do I, do I support uh, with my business this kind of a marriage? That's in the news, right? So those are convictions in which I have to make a decision, and it, there are some politics in the conviction realm as well. So then what are preferences? Let's just be honest. It's what I like. I like chocolate. What do I enjoy? What do I think is best? It can be styles. It can be methods. It's what I prefer in society. It's what I prefer in church. It's what I prefer in my family. It's just, Let's just not make everything an absolute, okay? Just admit, sometimes it's just, we like it better that way. Worship styles. Hair. Purple hair. Blue hair. <laughs> Dyed hair. Fashion, diet, schooling, ministry ideas. Oh, and some politics. Because a lot of our voting in politics is about what do we prefer we would prefer a society with with less benefits and less taxes more focus on this more focus on that somebody like happy to have more taxes you know so a lot of those kind of issues they're just preferences by the way can you see why christians are so divided over politics because it falls into all of these areas and sometimes we don't have the discernment to know which is which what are you arguing about I'm Republican. I'm Democrat. It's a little more nuanced than that, isn't it? Let's think biblically. So we're talking about convictions when it comes to meat offered to idols, the food issue. Let's just know which which category we're in here. Food does not make you near to God. Love, the premise of this passage, love does. So the problem is that some people in Corinth, the knowledge that puffed them up caused them to say, you can do anything you want to. Let's see what they said, what Paul says to them, I mean. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak, don't read that condescendingly, to the sensitive. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? Won't he be tempted to do the same thing? So the weak brother for whom Christ died, let's put this on a spiritual reality test. They they, they are people that Christ died for also. The people we disagree with are people Christ died for and who believe in Christ. They're destroyed by your knowledge. Destroyed does not mean they're going to hell, but rather you have somehow damaged, hurt, drawn, sucked them into something they should not have done. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak, their sensitive conscience, you sin against Christ. Uh, the, end, the, the, the last verse, let's talk about first. You sin against your brother, and you sin against Christ. So who's the mature Christian now? It's not very mature to sin against Christ and your brother by pressing your freedoms. Because the problem is, in verse 9, that if you exercise your freedom this way, you are actually a stumbling block to the weak. Your freedom, your right, your liberty. They were evidently pressing to be able, some of them, to eat in the idol's temple. That's how much freedom they thought they had. Just realize if you press it that way, you are actually a stumbling block to others. That term, the stumbling block, probably references the Levitical law that said, do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But have such respect for God. Fear God. I am the Lord. And when you have a respect for God, you respect people with disabilities. You care about them. You don't in any way mock them. You don't, you certainly wouldn't. A blind person walking by and you're going to stick your foot out? Be careful then that the exercise of your liberty or freedom does not become a stumbling block. Do you realize how mean that is actually? Some of you, if you follow Milwaukee Bucks basketball, know the backstory of one of Bucks players, Grayson Allen. Probably a really nice guy now. He's, he's grown up a lot. But if you know the story, it's like he's spending his whole NBA career trying to live down some intentional tripping he did in college. And so now he's always you know, kind of a suspect for that. But that's that. don't be that guy who has that reputation that you don't care what anybody thinks. You're just going to go do it. Don't, don't be the one... Paul says, who kind of just says, I can eat in idols' temples because I know that idols are nothing. And you sit down and you, you do something and some other Christian, it was kind of like, oh man, it's so hard to come over, overcome, overcome the idolatry mindset. I just, I just always felt that these things had power and I just, and next thing you know, they're eating too. And you were the cause, the human cause. They're still accountable, but you've sinned against your brother, verse 12. Here's what gets really interesting about the example that Paul uses. He, of those options, of, of, of you, can, you could eat the f- some of the food went to the temple feast, some went to the, gro- to the grocery store, and, and some were just, you don't know where they got it from because they're at the friend's house. He uses the example of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And when, if you jump ahead into chapter 10, we won't do that now, but chapter 10, verses 18 to 21, Paul will actually say, don't do that. Don't go to the temple feasts because you are participating with demons when you do. So Paul is going to expressly forbid them, as an apostle, not to eat in an idol's temple. Some were pressing that their freedom went that far. Paul says, no, it doesn't. But actually, Paul doesn't bring it up in chapter 8. I think the reason he doesn't bring it up in chapter 8 is because he says, I want you to first of all get the principle a different reason you shouldn't do it is because you care so much about the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that's why the first reason you shouldn't do it I'll tell you later on why you shouldn't do it for your own sake but right now I just want you to think about why you shouldn't do it for the body's sake because love builds up it's unloving first of all then it's actually wrong as well for you and, and the reality could be, verse 11, that that more sensitive brother for whom Christ died is, is damaged somehow. They could be sucked into your sin because what you're doing is indeed sin, we'll see in chapter 10. And they can be drawn into your sin. Don't sin against your brother because that's a sin against Christ. So it's a double sin. Verse 12. Double sin means Not only is it something you must confess before God, but you should apologize to another person. Someone punches you in the face, they're wrong with God, but they're wrong with you. They should apologize to you, right? And he says it's that kind of a thing. So Paul concludes this first edition of answering the question of meat offered idols with what he's chosen to do as a model to us. Verse 13, Therefore... If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. I'll be a vegetarian, he says. I'll volunteer for vegetarianism and give up meat. In other words, I'll do the, I'll do the extreme so that I will not cause him to fall. That's the way of love. That is self-sacrifice for the sake of somebody else. That's, that's when you know you could do something. You know what is right, but you actually keep your mouth shut or you, keep, you don't actually do what you could do. You limit your freedoms because you care so much about the rest of the body of Christ. Paul said, I don't need a chapter and verse. It doesn't have to be the 11th commandment spelled out to me. I just won't do it because my love makes my choice. I care that much about the people sitting around me in church, I care that much about people sitting around me in a Bible study that I, I I don't I just I'll just limit my freedoms. I don't have to, I don't have to to spout off, yeah, but you know, these idols are really nothing. I'll just quietly do that which would be most helpful to them. If it causes someone to sin, it, it, I, I'm just not gonna do it. Now the question comes up sometimes. This, this is sometimes uh, a, a passage that is brought up by those who will tend to be more rule-bound, legalistic. of Someone tends to be someone who just like, disapproves of many things that Christians do. See, you shouldn't do it. This is actually not saying that we should be paranoid about who approves what we do. It's not saying that we got to take a poll of everybody around us Do you all all think it's okay? Can I do this? It doesn't mean, it's not saying, it's not addressing this issue even of whether everybody is comfortable with all of my choices. And so it's not saying, just got to look over your shoulder all the time. Because it doesn't say, if my brother is offended, verse 11. It says it causes him to sin. I'm not responsible to make everybody feel comfortable. So, Because the difference is that Paul is not addressing legalism in this passage per se. Legalism would be those, uh, maybe as Christians, who, who tend to ignore grace. And they like to think of, of the Christian life as, as rules. And if I just got to have a rule for everything, then I know what to do. This, this Galatians is about that. Uh, I, think, I think it's happening more in, in, in this, sec, in this uh, subject in Romans, but... This is not about legalism, because what Paul is addressing here, it seems to me, is the libertines, the ones in the other ditch, the ones who tend to say, I'm free in Christ to do anything I want to, and they had actually crossed the line and gone into eating at the sacrificial feasts. They're the ones who abuse grace. In this ditch, people ignore grace. We want to be love and grace, speaking the truth in love. So how do we apply this? Just a a couple of samples of some issues we already mentioned. How do we limit our freedoms? Let's talk about alcohol and entertainment. Biblically, you are free to abstain from alcohol completely. You are free to drink in moderation. You're not free to drink in excess. That's an absolute. Actually, do not be drunk with wine, okay? So know what's an absolute, what's a conviction, but you are free. How much will you press your freedoms? Uh, How close to the line will you you live? And how much will you consider the body? How much will you consider your children as you make those choices with wisdom and discretion? Understanding any addiction issues and how sins can be generational, how will you make those choices? This, This doesn't answer that question. It just says wisdom and discretion and care for others. If you're, if you're hanging out with someone, you may, you may you have complete freedom, you're gonna have a glass of wine, but you're hanging out with somebody you know is struggling with alcohol. And for them, they just need to stay sober. Will you insist on your right to have your glass of wine with them? Entertainment. You're free to choose what movies you watch. We don't have a rating system to be a member of the church, you know. <laughs> Why would we ever use the world's rating system to tell us what to do anyhow? But you make choices, and, and you and I are accountable before God for our choices because we would know, no matter what the rating is, no matter what anybody says about anything, we would know whether a certain subject, certain images are going to tempt us, obviously, to lust or to even, you know, constant exposure is going to somehow... Change our biblical worldview where we don't even understand it spiritually because we've just seen it so much. So we're accountable to God for those things. But secondarily, I should actually say not secondarily, are we also looking at how we influence others and how our entertainment choices affect our kids? And, and are, we, are we walking our children through the issues of truth and grace and discernment? Is, are, we, are we all on the just cut it off and nobody can watch anything? Uh, or is it like anything goes, I'm not going to, so how are we going to walk that line for our children, or even if if our peers are affected, or or, or sometimes even just bragging, well, yeah, I just saw this show, it's no big deal, and someone else goes, no big deal? Boy, that's, I'll try it. Have the discernment and the discretion. What's funny to you? What jokes do you tell? What language do you use? Do we have a sensitivity to others as we make those choices? So Paul says, here's my conclusion. If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not, I will not cause him to fall. So set your convictions before God. Living vertically first, do you love God? And then you will have the wisdom You will have the love that considers appropriately, not excessively, but you'll understand your decisions and when they really affect others. Because love builds up. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know it's a complicated world we live in and that every day we make choices of what we will see or read or do. And all those around us must as well. Help us to be near to you, that we understand your heart. And so near to you to know that you have a vast grace for a wide variety of Christians with a wide variety of convictions and living in different situations and cultures. And then, Lord, help us to have that uh, discretion when we're with others as well as when we are just alone in your presence, that we would walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.